Today's story is about Elijah. I'm just going to put my story notes right here. We'll do, we'll do most of the acting right. Okay, I understand you don't... Okay. So, the story of Elijah. Many of you have probably heard of Elijah. He was a man with a nature like ours. He was a prophet, but James 5.17 describes him as a man... With a nature like ours, I have to keep track of my time or we will be here way too long. So I'm just going to put that right there. There we go. All right. But who was he? Who is Elijah? Not Caden. Who is Elijah? Who is this man, Elijah? Well, today's story is all about him. But the story doesn't begin with Elijah. The story begins with a king and a queen. Now, there was a king and queen in Israel, and they actually loved each other, so they have to be close. I'm not going to require you to touch each other, but you have to, like, sit within six inches, Um, 12 inches. We'll call it 12. 12 inches. They can accept 12 inches. There was a king and queen, and whenever you think of a king and queen, usually you think it's a good king and queen. Well, not in today's story. Today's story, we have a terrible king and queen, one who would be described as the worst. In verse 16, 32 through 33, we find who our king and queen are. We have our king, Ahab. King Ahab. Don't be too excited. Actually, he would be excited. Ahab was an excited but fearful man. I want you to stand up, Ahab. I want you to just kind of like arch your back, look a little bit weak, maybe do something evil, like rub your hands together. Yes. All right. That's King Ahab. He is slightly evil. And then he has his lovely wife, Jezebel. Jezebel, please stand up. Look very proud. Cross your arms. Cross proudly. That's not going to work. Well, so anyways, Jezebel, there you go. She was a very... Very strong queen. You may sit back down. But they did not please God. They were described in 1632 through 33 as a couple who erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. The king built altars to false gods in the land of Israel. And he would go and serve and worship them there. And Ahab did more. He did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. He did more than any other king to provoke the Lord. He did more evil than anyone else. And part of that was in being married to Jezebel. Jezebel was from a land who believed in Baal. She trusted in a false God and she led King Ahab even further into his idolatry and into his problems and mistakes. So Jezebel, worshiper of false God, proud and hates the God of Israel. So that's the king and queen we got. So God sends them a prophet. Stand up, prophets. Stand up, Elijah. Look strong and ready. Elijah is excited. He is there and he is ready, called by God, sent forth 
to confront Ahab and Jezebel, to tell them of their errors, tell them of all their wrongdoings, and shake the finger of the word of God in the face of their sins. So God sends him to Elijah, and sends Elijah to Ahab, and Elijah confronts him. And he goes to him, and he says in a mighty voice, As the Lord... The God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah predicts a drought. So he does this strong prediction and he's feeling mighty in valor. And he's like, I've done it. But then something happens. God tells him to run away. So he runs, he hides in his spot. Okay, you can just sit now. So sitting is hiding. Sitting is hiding for Elijah right now, just to keep him under control. And you're like, if you're reading this passage, you're thinking, why is Elijah hiding? Well, when he tells Ahab and Jezebel that, Jezebel goes about killing every prophet of Israel. She gets to work and kills every prophet, every Israelite that bows the knee to God, to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, and tries to just devastate and promote Baal worship over everything else. Because Baal was actually the God of storms and thunder. She knew, I can count on my God, they cannot count on theirs, I will kill them. So she goes about doing that, and Ahab does nothing. Because Ahab's kind of weak. And by kind of weak, I mean Ahab is very weak. He is a weak king. He's a weakling, a weak king. So thank you for that demonstration, Ahab. You may continue sitting. Now, Elijah's life, you think, wow, he had this great demonstration of power. He declares what's going to happen. And then God has him run away. You know, what's Elijah's life like? You know, Elijah's life is actually a story of epic height, stand up, Elijah, and dark, dark valley, squat. All right, now you can go back to sitting. He has these great victories of God and then abysmal disasters where he's just done. He's spent. What would it look like? Well, throughout the, throughout the story of Elijah, the first up, he declares that drought. He tells the, he tells the king and queen a drought is coming, But then there's a down. Jezebel starts killing the prophets and the people of Israel. But then there's an up. God provides him safety, tells him to go to this brook. And at this brook, during this drought, I will give you water and I will actually have ravens. My little helpers, can you like pretend to be ravens? All right, fly around. So the ravens actually bring Elijah food. Okay, you can go back to sitting down. They'll actually have a bigger part later, don't worry. Um, so God works to provide him with food and water, even when no one else is eating. But then things get worse. The drought becomes more powerful and dries up all the water and the food runs out. So he's down again, but then he's back up because God says, I will provide you with food. I will give you food. Go to this city and find this woman. So Elijah goes to that city, goes to the woman thinking, here will be the food that I need. And he gets there and he gets down again because the woman's a widow, which means she has no husband. She has no means of income. And they don't have food. 
They only have barely enough food for themselves. How are they supposed to feed Elijah? But God tells them, I will provide you with plenty of food. Use what I ha- use what they have, and I will give you the food you need. So he's up again because he has food not only for himself, but for the, for the widow and for her son. But then the son gets sick, and he dies, and Elijah is low again. But then God instructs him how to bring the son back to life. So Elijah is up again. He's happy. But over and over again, dark valleys, great heights. That's Elijah's life. And then at that point, after he saved the son, God tells him to get up. Get up, Elijah. Go back to Ahab. Now he is afraid of Ahab and Jezebel, but he goes. So he walks over. Well, let's have you stand there. And he sees Ahab, and there was an interruption on the way from a guy that didn't want Elijah to be killed because he knew if Elijah went to Ahab, he would be killed. But Elijah is obedient, he goes anyways, and he meets with him. And the first thing out of, Ahab, or out of Ahab's mouth is, here comes the troubler of Israel. You are the one that brings us difficulty. In a weird face like that, kind of. <laughs> But Elijah is clear. You, Ahab, you are the one that has troubled Israel. And Elijah goes on to challenge the prophets of Baal and Asherah, saying, I and the God of Israel will bring back rain. And this big thing happens. We don't have time to tell that story. If you want to see an amazing story, read all of Elijah's life. Elijah, you can sit back down. But essentially what he says is, I am going to challenge your prophets Jezebel's prophets on their home turf, they claim that they have the God of thunder and rain. Well, the God of Israel is more powerful than that. He created all this. He sustains the clouds. He gives us everything. I can call on him, him, and he will give us rain. And so they have this battle, this battle between their prophets and Elijah. And Elijah wins. And God sends rain. And it comes. And they've been, there's been this drought and everybody's dying. And all of a sudden, there's rain coming. So where is Elijah? He's just had this great victory. He's defeated the prophets of, of Jezebel. He's up. Stand up, Elijah. He feels great. He's awesome. And then Jezebel stands up. She is mad. She worships Baal. Those were her prophets. And Elijah not only defeated them, embarrassed them, Elijah actually kills them. And so Jezebel is furious. And she gets a messenger and she tells that messenger, find Elijah and tell them, I am going to end him. Just like I killed all the other prophets, he too will die. So Elijah has this great, amazing experience of closeness with God, is victorious beyond compare, and now faces death. And he's down. And he's broken. He's sad. As much as God has been on his side, he has nothing at this point you know, what did he do? This, all this great victory, the removal of the drought, what did that accomplish? Where, where is Israel? Where are the rest of the prophets? What is God doing 
in his country right now. So he gives up. And he just prepares to die. And he just tells, he tells God, I just want to die. Just take away my life. He's just quitting. But God sends him food and sends him to a mountain called Horeb. And four signs appear to him. God shows him four great things. So here, my assistants, you're just going to be sitting. You're broken. You've been fed. You've been sent. You ran 40 days and 40 nights to get to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is where God gave Israel the law and where he appeared to Moses. So it's a great mountain. It has great history. But you're just sitting there and you're kind of sad. And God says, I'm going to show you four things. So girls, you're going to act out four things for me. Are you ready? Come stand right here. Okay. So first, as Elijah is looking, he sees wind. A powerful wind. What does wind look like, girls? Show us. Yeah, he sees this powerful wind, a destructive wind. But God tells him, I'm not in the wind. And then he sees an earthquake. Can you shake like an earthquake? Sees an earthquake, a mighty destructive earthquake. And all this power and the earthquake passes. God says, I am not in the earthquake. Then he sees a fire. Sees this powerful fire that accompanies. Yet again, another great sign, another great thing for him to see. And God says, I'm not in the fire. And then finally, he hears a whisper. Here's a whisper, a gentle whisper. And God tells them that he was in the whisper. Now God has shown him all of this. And how does Elijah feel? He's bitter. He's bitter. Right, kids, you can go. Go sit down. Thank you so much. Big hand, round of our applause. Elijah, thank you. King Ahab. Queen Jezebel, thank you. All right, so, so that's what we have. We have Elijah, and he is just, he's just bitter. He's unhappy. God has shown him all these great things, and then he gives him this whisper and that's at the end of the story. So, so the question becomes, why Elijah? Why is Elijah important today? Well, Elijah is important because he's described in James 5.17 as a man with a nature like ours. His experience is amazing like ours. It's filled with great heights, great things that, excuse me, great things that we can look to, but it's also filled with deep, dark valleys, suffering that is just as tragic, just as unfathomable, and just as hard as we go through. And that's where we find ourselves, Romans 8, 18, today. And we're going we're gonna to try and cover, emphasis on try, through 25. We'll see how much I get through. But that's where we find ourselves today. And I'm just going to start by reading 18. And then I just want to point out the connection, why this matters, what God was saying to Elijah through those signs. And 18 was our memory verse. For I consider that sufferings this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. Last time we looked at the reality of we are sons, we are heirs of Christ. And yet sin remains. So what are we meant to do with that? And the point of our our sermon was we're supposed to live the life that we have in Christ. We're supposed to live our lives. And in living our lives, we need to be killing our sins. So that answers, that's the answer to the problem of sin. But then Paul brings up, well, not only is there the problem of sin, but there's the problem of suffering as well. What are we to do with suffering? Well, Paul is telling us the same thing that he told Elijah in 1917 through 18. I'm just going to go there so I can explain the end of the story. 19. 17 through 18. This isn't the exact end of Elijah's story, but it starts to, it's that, there is when it stops focusing on him. God says to him, he's explaining what happened. And I, I think this is the clearest explanation of the fire, the winds, and the earthquake. He says, And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Now you're hearing those names for the first time. You're like, who are these people? Well, God was sending Elijah to continue to do great things. He was going to appoint three men that were going to do huge things for the kingdom. That's kind of what those signs were about. It's the clearest explanation of the three signs that he encountered. That the wind will be Hazael, the um, earthquake, did I lose my place? Oh, sorry. The earthquake will be Jehu, and the fire shall be his disciple, Elisha, not Elijah. That's the clearest explanation I can get of that. But then you have that still, small voice. What is that? But he, he says in 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God said, in that, that is where I am. That is who I am with. And that point, we and Elijah should be realizing something. Elijah's problem was that he was banking all of his hope in Israel in these fantastic displays of God. These great and amazing things that, don't, that every time that he didn't do exactly what he felt he should have to Jezebel, and to the prophets and to Ahab, that he was not doing enough for God. That God was limited by his incapability. That God was limited by his failings. That Israel was going to be destroyed by this king and queen that did not love God. And what God is telling him is that as strong as those signs are going to be, as strong as those demonstrations of power seem, my greatest strength lies in the people I keep. And Elijah's problem was that he felt alone. He felt deserted. He felt like it was over. And God is telling him, it's not. It's not. That he is not alone. And that he is keeping those who are is. And the same is true for us. This text is about how suffering cannot compare with glory. But suffering is loud. Suffering is distracting. Suffering is overwhelming. 
But what God wants us to know is the same thing that he told Elijah. Number one, you are not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your suffering. As much sin and suffering wants to tell you you're alone and that nobody else is going through anything like that and nobody else cares, that is a lie. That's a lie. And it's the same lie that Elijah believed. When the reality is he is not alone. That God is still working. That God keeps. And that God is acting. And that this suffering you're going through is not the end. It's not the end. Now, Paul does it through a strange way. He says, you are not alone. And then he tells us who we can look to for help. Who we can look to to see who has also been suffering. Someone who has walked with us since the very beginning through suffering. Someone who has felt the same strain of the curse of sin. Someone who has longed for redemption and has been hoping for Christ's return. And you're asking, who is this? Who knows what I've been going through? Who knows my struggle? And Paul says the most, prof- most amazing thing in 19 through 22. He says, for the creation, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The other, for Paul, is creation. I, I expect that you're thinking, that's weird. Because it's, it's pretty weird. That it's, it's, it's pretty weird that Paul says, if you, if you want to understand suffering and how to escape suffering, look to creation. Uh, that wouldn't be the first bit of advice that I would give someone who is suffering. It would probably be, look to others who have gone through it, look to the cross, look to these aspects. But Paul is very clear, they are to look to creation. Which made me think, like, have you ever wondered, like, what your dog or your cat, many of us have dog, have pets, ever wondered what they would say to you if they could speak? Have you ever wondered what the trees and the rocks are, are, are about, what they're made for, what they're seeking to do with all their existence? Have you ever wondered what the wind is actually whispering? Paul's saying you're all of creation. All of creation exists to tell us about God. To tell us about his glorious, how he is glorious. To tell us that he is good. And to tell us that he loved, that, that God himself loves us. And though frustrated, though cursed, and though so often seemingly set, us, set against us, they keep telling us that. They keep telling us that he is good, that he is glorious, that he loves us, and that he is coming back. That is why Jesus had to tell his people when he was coming into Jerusalem, do not restrain them, for I say even the rocks would cry out. He knew that rocks themselves could cry out to his glory to tell them when he was making his triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem that they would tell of his glory. And we too are anxiously waiting. We are waiting for something better, just like creation is 
waiting. And that takes us to 23 through 25. 23 through 25 says, And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The reality is we too are groaning. When suffering comes, we groan. We are labored. But have you ever wondered why you groan? Why you long? Why suffering is not simply just an acceptable reality that we as a human race have gotten used to, but an internal pain, horror, that makes you long for better. Ever wondered why that is? Well, it's because of hope. It's because a hope has been imprinted in us. It's because we've been made in the image of the glory of God. We've been made in God's image. We weren't created randomly. We were made perfectly. And we were corrupted by sin. But in the midst of that corruption stood that original signature of God that pointed to something more. And suffering reminds us of that more. It does. It does. You think of ease, security, peace, happiness. When you have those things, you don't think towards the future. You think in the moment. You think, I only want this. This is so perfect. Everything is right. But when suffering comes, suffering says, there has to be something better. This is not the way it should be. Something is wrong. Peace, happiness, security steal our attention. But suffering directs it. Suffering says there is hope. Suffering says there is better. And suffering says there must be something more. That's where Elijah was. The fact that he confronted Ahab and Jezebel pointed to his struggle and suffering. He knew that that was not what the nation was to be about. He knew that what the nation of Israel was going through was wrong, was sinful, was an error. And he knew that something better was meant for them as they stood before God. And he wouldn't have gotten there without suffering. He wouldn't have gotten there. And his suffering helped him. His suffering spurred him on. His suffering turned him to God. And his suffering gave him. His hope voice. So how do we work out the tension of being children of God and still suffering? How do we work out that tension? We are children of God. If we have come to trust in Jesus Christ, if we have known him at the cross, known that by faith we are saved through his blood, that his spirit is within us, and that we are we are eternally secure in him. How do then we work out the fact that we are heirs with him and yet suffer? Well, it comes from the two lessons that we can learn from Elijah today. The first is you're not alone. 
we start, we work it out first by understanding we are not alone in our suffering. First off, suffering is not the end of your story. And secondly, you are not the first person to suffer. Other people have gone through what you've been through. Other people have known the pain that you are currently struggling with. Other people might be suffering the exact same things in friends or family nearby you. And God wants you to know it's the same thing that he wanted Elijah to know. You're not alone. You're not alone in that. In fact, all of my creation is yelling, you are not alone. Turn to God in this time. The second, that suffering is not meaningless. And that we need to let, we need to make our suffering serve our hope. Now to close up, in CB Kids, one of our most important parts of the morning is called the Christ Connection. We tell these stories about Elijah, we tell stories about Saul, we tell stories about the book of Judges. And you can tell those stories to kids and they can be really great moral object lessons in which they learn what to do and what not to do. But that's not the point. That's not the point of sermons. That's not the point of the messages in CP Kids. We want them to see something greater. We want them to see that throughout the whole of Scripture, the entire book of Scripture is telling the story of one person. That's God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when we are reading through the book of 1 Samuel, we want them to know how Jesus is connected to that, either specific th- specific, specifically, excuse me, specifically by telling a, a very direct story about Christ or indirectly by telling us what it means to live in Christ. And Elijah's story reminds me of one we taught recently when Israel demanded a king. Now, in that time, we had the kids yell out, we want a king, we want a king. Not going to be doing that this week, kids. Um, but we were telling the story and we brought up three different people to act as kings of other nations because Israel wanted a king like the other nations. They were tired of the leaders they had been sent by God and they were telling the leader of Israel at that time, we want a king that is like their king. We don't want a king like God. We want a king like their king that won't go away, that will fight and that will do whatever we want them to. And God warns them. But they wanted a king like the nations. And Elijah's desire was the same. He wanted victory. He wanted victory for God over Jezebel and over the false god Baal and over Ahab. But he wanted that victory his way. He wanted the drought to ruin Jezebel and ruin Ahab. But it didn't. He wanted the drought to ruin the prophets of Baal. But it didn't. He wanted his works that God was doing through him to do huge transcendent things. So what did God show him? God showed him that his power was in the quiet. That his work was in his people, that his greatest demonstration of power would be in the people that he kept from kneeling before Baal. And Christ tells us the same thing with suffering. We look at our lives in Christ. We say, I am purchased by his blood. I have been made heirs together with him. I have been united to death, to him in his death, 
and in his life I am now free from condemnation, as Romans 8 says. We say, yes, Lord, you are amazing. I will worship you. You are our cornerstone. How glorious you are. Make me more like you. Strengthen me by faith. Grow me in holiness. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And we wait. And what comes? Suffering. And we say no. And we, like Elijah, get bitter. And we go through it and we learn more about God and we trust in him more and we come out the other side stronger and more grown in God. And we get to that next point where we start praying again and we start hoping in God more and we say, God, make me more like you. Strengthen my faith. Grow me in holiness. And what comes? Suffering. And we hate it. We hate it like children hate growing pains. And we miss the point. We ask, where are you, Lord? Why are you not helping? Why are you not on my side? Why have you not done anything? Why, oh why, am I going through this suffering? The reality is that suffering is meant to be a servant. Suffering is meant to grow our hope. Suffering is meant to build our trust in God but we spurn it, we reject it, and we hate it. The reality is that we have the capability to be more near him in that time than any other. Because it is when we suffer that we start to hope. So today, I just pray That as you leave, as you face the trials of life, as you go through suffering, because the reality is you will. You will. We all do. Every week, every day, there is that time. I pray that you would remember two things. Over all of it, I pray that you would remember the gospel. That in the greatest moment of suffering that mankind ever knew or demonstrated became our salvation. There was no greater suffering than Jesus had on the cross. And yet there is no greater hope than we have received than through Jesus Christ on the cross. So remember that first, but then remember two things. In your suffering, you're not alone. You're not. Don't let yourself be isolated in suffering. Turn to others. Turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn to your family. Even in the midst of it, look towards God's creation. But know that you are not alone. And then second, let your suffering serve your hope. Hope in something better than what you're going through. And trust that the God who made you, who knows you, who loves you, and who died for you, trust that he will work to bring you greater things and to take you safely home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for the kids. Thank you for the joys that they are. How blessed I have been to be their pastor and be so involved in their education and their discipleship and getting to know them. I treasure the days that I get to see them and so grateful 
for the way that you work in younger generations to know you and love you. I ask right now, Lord, that you would that you would help us to look at our suffering and not run away. That we would look at our suffering, know that you love us, that you care for us, and that you are doing things that we cannot fully understand at this point. So we just give this day over to you. And we give this time as we enter into communion over to you. And so we thank you and we glorify you and we praise your awesome and holy name. It's through Christ's precious blood that we pray. Amen. Pastor Phil is now going to bring us home today. I just want to pronounce this uh, final blessing over you today if you'd bow your heads. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.